This is The Bail List. A lot goes through your mind in, in three seconds. So mm. I, I landed and I was trying to see if I could move anything. It sort of says you meant to sort of swim and but the snow from that height just landed like wet concrete and started to sit immediately. The Bail List is brought to you by Wild Earth, your one-stop shop for adventure gear, inspo and tips. Check out the stores in Brisbane and Burley Heads and Awesome Woodies, handcrafted, Brisbane-made training tools just for climbers. And for the first time, The Bail List is also brought to you by Sunnydale Studios, the Gold Coast's newest content house by KKNO Agency. This is The Bail List. Hey, I'm Nicole Rolls. Welcome back to The Bail List. I am so excited to bring you a fresh new episode. And if you're a return listener, you'll have already noticed that something is different. Yes, that's right. The sound quality is no longer shithouse. For the past year or so, I've been recording this podcast in my living room with a couple of pretty low budget mics, but you know, you've got to walk before you can run. However, now I'm thrilled to be recording in a professional studio for the first time. And I want to say another big shout out to my friends at Sunnydale Studios for letting me make this the show's new home. I will no longer be assaulting your eardrums with bad quality audio, so let's get crackalackin' with the episode. Vanessa Wills was an experienced mountaineer when she and her climbing partner set their sights on a route on Mount Christie, a 2,600-metre peak in New Zealand's Southern Alps. As they climbed, the weather began to turn, and the pair were forced to make a fraught descent from the summit. With poor visibility, they found themselves on dangerous terrain, and suddenly, Vanessa felt the slope liquefy around her. They were caught in an avalanche. I have no background in avalanches or mountaineering myself, so I had to read up a little bit for this episode, and I thought it might be helpful to give you a bit of an avalanche 101 for those who are, like me, unfamiliar with alpine snow and ice conditions. So this is a quote from a book I've been using to do some background reading for the episode, Penny Goddard's Avalanche Awareness in the New Zealand Backcountry. In order to trigger an avalanche, additional load on a snowpack weakness is required. Most avalanches that bury people are relatively small and are triggered by the victim or another person in their party. Natural triggers include new loading by snow or wind transport, rain, warm temperatures, sun, rapid temperature change, cornice fall, ice fall and rock fall. So now we've laid a bit of groundwork, let's get started with the story. Hi, Vanessa. Yep. Hi, Nicole. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I am really good. I said to you right before I pressed record that I've been so excited for so long to record this story with you because I find it both fascinating and terrifying at the same time. So, uh, yeah, thanks. I, guess I, did. <laughs> I did as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. I think. What fascinates me about this story is um, just the fact that I have dabbled in a little bit of alpine rock climbing, but I am not in any way across um, ice climbing. And so for me, this is a really new kind of learning experience. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Um, But before we get started in telling the story, um, I just want to get you to sort of introduce yourself, maybe a little bit about your climbing history, how you started climbing and a few uh, milestones in your climbing career, a few sort of standout routes or standout moments that you think would be interesting for people to know? Okay, sure. Uh, I started climbing late 2000 uh, when I was 34 years old and um, the reason I got into it was a surfing trip had uh, been cancelled where I was meant to go to Mexico so I was looking around for something else to do and sort of mountaineering course in uh, near the Seattle area of the USA and sort of went on a mountaineering course, saw my first glacier and I guess got hooked. And when I came back, 
I did a mountaineering course down at Blue Lake, and obviously there's no glaciers in Australia. Mm. Uh, so I thought I should go and do one in New Zealand and try and uh, get more knowledge. Um, uh, clearly, the the learning curve is is quite acute. There's many ways you can die, so I was keen to try and get some uh, professional professional guidance, I guess, early on. Uh, so I did that. There wasn't much ice climbing or, or mountaineering in Australia, so I then gravitated to rock climbing. Um, I guess I started going off in the local gym up in Newcastle, which is at the university. main advantage of that was it was 18 metres high. And I found pretty early on I had quite good finger strength and good endurance uh, and then started to do a lot of rock climbing. I, I loved it so much that I took a year off uh, in 2005 from my work and went travelling around the world, mountaineering and rock climbing and climbed a few 7,000, close to 7,000 metre peaks. Um, and then the events that we'll talk about later happened in 2006. Um, and I guess slowly after that, I started to do less uh, mountaineering and ice climbing and more rock climbing, thinking that it was probably a safer medium and it was also far more accessible. Uh, also being at high altitude really takes it out of you and when I had only short trips uh, or short windows to, to do trips, having to acclimatise for two-thirds of the trips before you could try a decent alpine objective um, was getting tricky. So in terms of some of my most favourite trips, we had a trip to Patagonia um, about 10 years ago, uh, and that was the first trip I did with my, my current partner, Dave, and we didn't do any major objectives, but we had a wonderful time uh, climbing on the granite in Patagonia in the Torre Valley, which is one of the most remarkable places you can camp in the world, I think, ringed by amazing granite spires. Uh, also, one of our great trips was to uh, the Cirque of the Unclimbables um, in, in Canada, up in the uh, Northwest Territories, where we climbed uh, climb Lotus Flower Tower. That was also a pretty amazing trip. And again, another amazing experience to, to live for two weeks in this sort of glacial cirque, which is known as Fairy Meadows, and yeah, it was quite magical. And then probably my other great trip that I've done was Ball's Pyramid. We were lucky to be on the uh, um, Australian Museum uh, expedition looking for stick insects, and I was lucky to be the second female to climb Ball's Pyramid. Uh, as part of that process, we set up fixed lines and we go out every night trying to survey for stick insects and other um, uh, insects and do sort of botany surveys and that type of thing. So they're the standout ones, but, um, I mean, I've done heaps of other mount mountains and just uh, including Amad de Blam and Aconcagua, probably the two highest I've been up. But I used to go to New Zealand every year for mountaineering trips on more technical uh, peaks. And the best one I did which was that right at the start is but this trip that we'll be talking about was on the east face of uh, Douglas, which is a lovely steep ice climb essentially, and that went super well, and perhaps it went so well that, and we, we became so confident that uh, it led to our downfall a few days later when we had the problem. All right, so let's get stuck into that um, misadventure of yours. So um, the first thing I want to talk about is just sort of the the geography of the area. So um, the location that you're in, um, you flew into an area where there's a hut called Pioneer Hut, um, and that's near Mount Douglas, is that right? Yeah, so it's just west of the main divide, so near Mount Douglas and under Tasman and Lindenfield. Um, and, um, I mean, it's not that far from Mount Cook, but you can't see it from where you are because you're below the main divide. And we were staying in the hut and it looks sort of northwest and, and west down across the Fox Glacier. 
um, and across to another mountain called Mount Christie. So we, we the, the main purpose of the trip was to climb Mount Douglas, which we actually did, I think, on our second day there. And we had really good conditions and it went really well. We're back at a decent hour. And then we climbed three other, or two other ice routes uh, over the following few days when the weather permitted. And we had been looking at the balcony, thought it would be nice. We, we didn't know about any of the routes on Christie, but we could see some fairly striking looking ice lines that looked like they would be interesting climbs. In terms of the terrain, like I said, I'm not particularly familiar with mountaineering, certainly not in New Zealand. Um, but one thing I do know, which probably most climbers know, is that Mount Cook itself which you're saying you're sort of in the vicinity of, um, is a pretty foreboding mountain. So in terms of conditions, is it similar to that? Are the conditions um, pretty kind of unpredictable, can be quite dangerous? Uh, mainly the, it's, there's two things in New Zealand, I guess, one with climate change um, is it's harder to access the climbs. We you know, got around that by getting a helicopter in, um, I guess, high up on the glacier, so we didn't have to walk in. Uh, but certainly the ways into the mountains used to be easier, but now the glaciers have shrunk, so there's a lot of unstable lateral moraine with rockfall uh, zones. And also, perhaps not in 2006, but certainly on later trips, became more and more conscious of it being warmer and having fairly significant rockfalls come down in that environment. Um, this trip was in November, so it was what was used to be considered early, and we actually got fairly wintry weather, um, which I guess we had been used, more used to summer mountaineering. So, so perhaps again we were a little bit underprepared with uh, our equipment um, when we got stuck. Sure. on a day that started to snow and get very cold and windy. Sure. So tell me about the route that you ended up deciding to do. It was on the south face of Mount Christie? Yeah, so that where you look out across the Fox Glacier, you can see Mount Christie and there's several ice runnels that go up its fairly steep south face. Um, it's meant to be a fairly easy day, so compared to Araki Mount Cook, the lines are much shorter, um, but yeah, so we kind of were hoping we'd get up and usually start out at 2 or 3 a.m. so you get a good freeze and be back at the hut by lunchtime was kind of our plan. I'm just going to uh, stop you right there and ask you a quick question because this is, um, again, kind of a mountaineering thing that... Um, people might not be familiar with, you know, the, the old uh, expression of the alpine start. There's a reason why you start that early, right, when you're mountaineering, when you're dealing with snow and ice. Um, just talk me through sort of why that is necessary, why it's necessary to get up that early um, when you're going out for a climb like this. Um, for a few reasons. One is that if you have snow and ice, then the more frozen it is, often the better. So there's less risk of rock fall, there's less risk of ice fall. Uh, the cramponing conditions and your ability to move quickly across a glacier, for instance, the snow bridges are going to be more stable and you should be able to travel faster because you're not punching through the crust because it's all frozen. And later in the day, if it's warm and the freezing level rises, then you start to uh, have all those risks Basically, so you usually want to get onto a mountain, maybe get to the start or the cruxy section as the light comes in. Although with modern head torches, even that's not particularly essential as long as you know where you're going. And then get off uh, and actually out of harm's way before things start falling down on you. Sure. So you got up at 2am. At and how do you prepare to go out and climb a route like the route you climbed on Mount Christie? Uh, we usually have prepared the night before is ideal so you've actually kind of got everything lined up and you force down some porridge which i've never quite got the hang of at 2 a.m <laughs> in the morning and a cup of tea or something and then you just usually you sort of dress warmly and you head out the door like you usually if you can check the weather forecast 
in New Zealand, there's a schedule at 6pm, so we didn't have the chance of getting an updated weather forecast at 2am. Uh, but again, that would be possible with satellite phones, and it's usually a good idea if you have the opportunity. Yeah, but you'd had a pretty good weather window before that, so you kind of figured that your your um, chances of getting up in good weather were, were pretty high, right? Yeah, it sounded like... Um, the, the, the sky was clear when we looked out. It had snowed the day before, but we could still see our footprints across uh, across the glacier from where we'd been. Um, where we'd actually gone out and turned around, deciding it was too warm, and then it had snowed for a day, but we could still still see where we'd been. And then we decided to head out that morning. It was a clear sky. The forecast was for strengthening winds, and we didn't interpret it as being as much precipitation or snow. Uh, so possibly something changed, but we may have had some confirmation bias going on in that we heard the good parts and didn't pay much attention to the parts we didn't want to hear. Right. Yes, I'm familiar with that. My partner Andrew always says he doesn't believe in rain until it's actually raining, which um, has got us into some situations, but that is another story for another time. <laughs> So, um, so tell me about what happened um, when you got to the base of the route. What was it like? What were the conditions like on the route? Uh, so when we got to the base, it still looked pretty clear. It had been cold. We got over there pretty quickly. Um, and we started up. Um, so my climbing partner, and he led the first pitch and I followed. And by the time I got to the belay, even though it had been warm after the glacier travel, I think handling, even though I had on, on proper mountaineering mittens, my uh, sorry gloves, my hands were really cold. But I swapped over to mittens and they rewarmed. We actually discussed whether we should go down because it was a bit colder than we experienced in, on our three previous climbs. But it kind of rewarmed and we felt all right. And then the next two pitches uh, went smoothly enough, but. By the time we got to the top of the third pitch, we were starting to get uh, spin drift coming down, suggesting the wind had really picked up. But we were in the lee of the wind, so we had no idea how bad it really was until we actually topped out on the ridge of this mountain and uh, got the full force of the wind and and actually saw how much of it was actually snowing. Um, so... At, the, the climb itself was fairly straightforward. I think it was four or five pitches, and it, it was nice and pleasant, but we suddenly realised this wasn't a good situation to be in. Right. So uh, when you got up the top, uh, I think I read – so just for a bit of background for people, you actually wrote an article on this story um, for New Zealand Climbing Magazine uh, – sorry, New Zealand Climber Magazine, which was published in 2006, I think. Um, so I've, I've sort of had a pre-read of this story and you had said in this article that when you got up top, the winds were gusting at about 80 kilometers an hour, which is almost like the strength of a cyclone, right? I mean, you know, they say cyclones, winds are a hundred, about a hundred Ks an hour. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was, I'm not that heavy, so it was enough to certainly buffet me around and feel that I could be actually picked up. I probably was picked up a little bit at times and tossed and uh, that was unpleasant. Also, the wind chill factor was, was very cold. We had down jackets, but we hadn't put them on for the climb and we're expecting them to be moving quickly to get off down to the coal and then back to Pioneer Hut. Um, and perhaps we should have ducked back down over the ridge and put them on, but we didn't. Um, mm. So we kind of were cold, so we wanted to keep moving. The ridge itself is kind of fairly unstable, blocky rock, and it had all this fresh snow sort of on it. There's lots of rocky um, blobs called gendarmes that we had to get around. We thought we'd start to pitch it because the conditions were bad and then quickly realised we are going to be way too slow and decided to solo it, which has its own risk, but in the context of the conditions that we found it, ourselves in and we decided that was the safest way to go so we soloed down to the coal um by this stage it was a, it was a complete whiteout pretty much uh we didn't have any great visibility uh across to the hut at all we couldn't see it and when we walked over there uh 
in the morning and also on our previous trip across there's a large serac or a nice cliff which was about over 15 meters high probably closer to 20. so we were very keen to descend quickly enough to get below that and again without visibility that was one mistake we started off we roped ourselves up for glacier travel um so that if someone says so you have coils of rope around your body there's a distance of rope between you so if someone falls into the crevasse the other person can um pin them down and then get out mm. so we were roped up and walking down across the coal and there must have been a little bit of a clearance but we suddenly realized we'd actually walked above this ice cliff mm. The conditions basically whited out. So to clarify, you were not, you'd kind of taken a wrong turning and instead of coming out below the cliff, you were actually above where you were supposed to be, right? Yeah, so we were, we were on a general descent. So we were, had got to the coal and we started to head downhill, but we obviously didn't do so steeply enough. We were going at more of an angle, so we actually went out above this ice cliff instead of, below it right so, so uh, you were above yeah. the serac is that right yeah so we're above the serac yeah and just a and note just... on seracs because um i was trying to get a bit of an understanding of this from my partner who has done a fair bit of um alpine climbing and mountaineering in his life and um he was sort of trying to explain the concept of a serac to me and I kept getting stuck on this this one thing because I kept saying to him, but what's it attached to? And he would say, nothing. It's not attached to anything. It's just a big sheet of ice that's somehow hanging off the side of a mountain and it's just kind of suspended there, right? So the thing about seracs, um, and you can probably explain this a lot better than I can, Vanessa, is that um, they really can just go at any time right they can just they can just fall uh seracs can collapse i guess i look at it like you've got a big sheet of ice and where the mountain is steeper depending on what it's on the bedrock that it's going over it can be like a loaf of bread and that can sort of concertina out or in so in this case it sort of goes out and you have space between the pieces of bread so you've actually got a, a sheet which, you know, like if you split your loaf of bread, there's like suddenly a gap. So if that happens okay, um, not too steeply, then it's you get crevasses. But if it happens over a fairly steep bit, then you're going to end up with, you know, a, a big ice sheet or, cl- or ice cliff. Um, and the glacier has sort of dropped away a little bit below it because the underlying bedrock is, is quite cliffy. Yeah. Sure. And, and that's what you were at the top of and so, that's when so, the snow began to move? Uh, so so an avalanche occurred. So the snow slope started to give way. So it wasn't a serrat collapse. It was us being in a, in a terrain trap. So we were gotcha. above a cliff when the uh, slope started to avalanche. So we turned around. I was a little bit higher and I wouldn't have gone more than about five steps or so when I suddenly realised that things were moving around me and that it was an avalanche. I don't think I heard a whoomp or anything like that. It was just this sudden sort of silent, slithery feeling and the snow piled up. And I stuck my uh, ice pick in um, and just sort of hung on and sort of got to about chest height. And who was uh, lower than me and closer to the cliff edge sort of got swept over first as I sort of stuck my ice picking which is your your ice tool you sort of stick the end into the snow and actually hung there which kind of let my climbing partner get dragged and I almost belayed him and that meant that he actually then dropped over and when his weight came onto me I suddenly got pinged like with quite a lot of force up in the air and and I had the acceleration whereas he kind of got much he sort of got lowered a bit and then a much softer landing all the snow from the avalanche because he was kept very close to the cliff edge went over his head so he didn't get buried at all whereas I kind of went ping out in the air and somersaulted or something I have no idea and the snow with the snow and it all sort of then went landing on top of me as I landed on the ground 
and you, the cliff. you fell a long way. You, you said you fell about 20 metres. Is that right? Yeah, we, we think it was definitely over 15 metres. It felt like 20 metres because I was, you know, a few metres up from the edge when it happened as well. Um, and I certainly had a few seconds uh, to contemplate the fact that I might be dying and think of things that I could do to try and um, stop, you know, thinking avalanches, you meant to keep a swimming motion. That really wasn't practical while you're flying through the air. I was just trying to think of which way my body might be and, I guess, brace for impact. Um, I think I let go of my ice tool um, and I just remember having a sense of regret, I guess, um, because we really did think that we were probably going to land in a crevasse and get buried and um, a lot goes through your mind in, in three seconds. So mm. I, I landed and I was trying to see if I could move anything. It sort of says you meant to sort of swim and but the snow from that height just landed like wet concrete and started to set immediately. So you were buried essentially so in the snow? Mostly buried, yeah. I, it turned out I was sort of trying to figure out if I was face, I was actually alive, which was a good thing, but if I face down or um, upside down or what way I, and then I, I think I could actually feel the tug of the rope um, on me was the first thing. And then I think I could, I figured out that my left arm was actually free. That uh, Ant, because he missed getting buried, was able to come over very quickly by following the rope and scrape the snow off me. That must have been so scary. So you're completely, almost completely submerged in snow. You don't know which way is up and which way is down. Um, and you've just fallen 20 metres. I mean, yeah, you must have been terrified. Uh, I guess it didn't really have time to be scared. As I said, I kind of thought I was, we're dying. It was just like, this is so stupid. <laughs> was the thing that I thought of, uh, what a stupid way to die. Um, and, yeah, just trying to think of ways that I could act, that I could get out of the situation, that you obviously felt a bit helpless and while you were falling. So, um, so the way so, Ant fell, he yep. essentially what landed on his feet, even though, I mean, obviously on 20 metres he must have fallen a bit, but... Um, he what he landed right side up basically. Yeah, so because I'd kind of given him a little bit of a, a dynamic delay, I guess he he was held upright rather than getting pushed over, and just he kind of as soon as he went off the cliff edge, he just fell straight down, and all the snow slid off um, over the top of him, so it didn't hit him at all. So he ended up with a sore ankle. Um, I guess he landed in. No, I mean, we had crampons on, and it's always bad falling with crampons, but uh, there, there was enough sort of soft snow at the base. And again, when I landed, that probably helped because I landed face down, as it turned out. And I think I'd bitten my tongue, you know, kind of had um, bruising around one eye with small laceration from where my, my glasses and their side shield had sort of dug in. And I wasn't sure whether it was the ice tool uh, all the right, but I impacted on my right ribs. So as I kind of had the snow scraped off me, I took a deep breath in. It's like, uh, oh, that hurts. <laughs> but it was so nice to be able to take a deep breath in. Yeah. So sort of spat blood out onto the snow and then you kind of was like, I think we both just said, let's get out of this bit because we didn't want to get, we didn't know if there was more snow about to come down. Let's get to somewhere if we can a little bit safer and regroup. Yeah. So, so you had to limp basically off the off the mountain. Uh, so yeah, Ant was limping and I couldn't breathe very well on my right arm. Didn't really want to work much because it was just extraordinarily painful. Um, I wasn't sure whether I had a punctured lung or not. I sort of it didn't get any worse, so um, I kind of relaxed a little bit, but I, I was more breathless than usual. Yeah. Um, and we, again, you know, white out, we sort of regrouped 
Uh, oh, so you still had no visibility at this point? So we still had no, visib- no visibility. Um, we had compasses and maps and uh, what we did is we, we tied the rope shorter so we could actually hear each other uh, over the wind and I went out the front and we had a compass bearing that we worked off the map to the base of a rocky ridge that comes down um, underneath the coal. And our plan was uh, to get to that. So we, we, we shortened the rope and headed. we took a compass bearing and I went out the front and basically headed off towards where a rocky ridge comes down. And we knew our plan was to try and stay very close to the rocks because we knew suddenly that all the slopes were avalanche prone. Um, basically, the wind had laden what we... It had snowed more than we thought and the wind had laden all these slopes which are in the lee uh, of the wind. So they the snow blows over and sits on these slopes. So we just wanted to stay very close to the rocks and try and not trigger another avalanche getting up to the hut. They were obviously a bit slow moving, um, but we did manage to get over to the, the base of those rocks and it was very steep and because but we'd have to start going up fairly steeply again and of course my right arm wasn't working that well and thought it was safest if he pitched so he would take out 60 metres of rope, set up an anchor and bring me up so I didn't uh, fall and, and drag us both off the, the cliff. Sure. So all of this, was this all still uh, fairly technical terrain or was it sort of you were walking off with a few steep bits? Um, it was something we'd normally just walk down. It's probably 40, 30, 30 to 40 degree slope, which is one of the ones that are at risk of avalanches. So normally you, you walk down in your crampons and you have a nice tool in your hand and you use that to keep your stability. Um, and you go, we usually, we had come down across it in the morning diagonally, like zigzagging sometimes, but we wanted to go straight up. So it was a little bit steeper near the rocks, um, but, but not too technical not, not like the climb that we'd done. Sure. It's still, it must've been a total death march with broken ribs, uh, an injured arm and an injured ankle. So Ant was you know, essentially limping up up and down these mountains um, or this terrain um, with an injured ankle. You must have both been, you know, just praying for it to be over. Uh, yeah, I think we just felt that we needed to keep moving. We we did contemplate, uh, we had a, sh- a shovel, so we did contemplate digging a, a bivy hole and, and, you know, tucking ourselves in in our bivy bags and waiting it out. But it was really cold and we felt that this strategy, I mean, we think we thought that the avalanche risk may persist um, and that this strategy probably would get us back to the hut safely, um, being our best chance of survival, really. So, so we, we, he got up, he sort of went about 40 metres and then that slope triggered and, and it avalanched, um, but we were out of the avalanche zone because we were right on the rocks uh and then uh, i think the some of the snow had gone over the rope so he thought he was belaying me up but eventually i just started climbing and uh there's a bit of slack out <laughs> and reached him and we did that once more and got up onto the plateau which is slightly above the level of the hut and um the snow at that stage was about thigh deep, so it was a bit of a slog, a slow slog back to the hut. But once we were on the plateau, we felt that we were going to get there safe and we kind of got to the hut and staggered through the door at 6pm, uh, looking fairly wild-eyed, I think. Oh, my and, God. Uh, yeah, we were very happy to get into the warmth. Yeah, what a long horror of a day. Was there anyone else staying in the hut with you or were you the only ones in there at that point? Uh, some uh, skiers and climbers had arrived uh, I think a couple of days earlier uh, who, who we actually knew. So they were there. Um, I think 
I'm trying to remember whether you actually made it for the schedule where you meant to report that you're safe or not. Um, so I think they were very happy to see us too because we'd obviously been out a lot longer um, than we planned and it was very nice to have someone, you know, make you a hot drink and get into a hut that's sort of slightly warm and out of the wind. Oh, yeah. And I guess be able to recount the episode too. Yeah. Um, they must have been freaking out actually because you were me- you said you were meant to come back around lunchtime, right? And you got back at 6 p.m. It would have been dark. Uh, yeah, it was November, so probably it was dark just because I think because of the cloud cover, but not it wasn't a complete uh, darkness at that time of year. Uh, yeah, we'd obviously been, I think it was probably more the weather had made them concerned and I don't know if they could hear the snow, uh, the, the, the avalanches happening, but, uh, yeah, they were probably more concerned that we'd, something had happened to us and wondering what they should be doing in terms of, of, uh, going and looking for us or whatever. I'm very glad they didn't come out and try looking for us or they may have ended up in problems themselves. Yeah. So from there, um, you, you're kind of in this hut, you're quite remote, um, and you chop it in. So were you sort of, did you then have to wait for your chopper to return at the scheduled time? Were you just basically stuck there until, um, until the chopper returned? Um, usually with the choppers, you just speak to them on the radio, uh, and arrange a pickup, um, and they can only come in when the weather's good. So clearly they couldn't have come in that evening and we had ascertained we didn't actually need rescuing immediately. Um, and we, we'd done like four good climbs. Uh, so, and we were coming near the end of the supplies we'd taken in. So we were planning to get a chopper out anyhow. So, uh, in the next clearing, which fortunately I guess turned out to be the next day, it sort of cleared up enough that a chopper could come in and pick us up uh, with all our stuff as planned and the other guys sort of helped carry it out. And we uh, flew down to Fox Township, which is quite surreal. So one minute you're in Alpine Territory and the next you're at sea level. Yeah. And my breathing certainly felt a little bit better as we descended. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, just going back to, to Mount Christie itself, um, I realized that we didn't entirely touch on the nature of that route specifically. So it's a, a, what a technical ice climb, is that basically what it is or mixed climbing? Uh, it was basically ice. There was a little bit of mixed section, but I think we thought it was water ice free, um, which is one of the New Zealand grading systems, which is reasonably straight forward in terms of the actual climb. Um, I think the East Face of Douglas, which we've done, is considered uh, WI5 by comparison, um, much longer and steeper climb. So, yeah, it was meant to be more a little fun jaunt. (laughs) (laughs) And instead it was um, a a total, well, I was going to say a shit show, but I don't think that quite covers it. It's a horror show maybe is, is more, um, more accurate. Um, what, one of the things that um, I found really interesting that you um, have written in this article and you sort of said to me when we first spoke on the phone about this is that um, you kind of considered it to be uh, that people might write this off as being like a bit of a, a dumb Aussie manoeuvre. Um, but it's, it kind of sounds to me like a, a bit of bad luck as well. Um, what are the things you think kind of culminated in this happening? Were there a few decisions that you think you would have made differently if you had your time again? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't have really gone out, um, given the forecast probably wasn't, we, we probably treated the forecast a bit optimistically and it had snowed, you know, a a bit, uh, and having gone out, we probably should have turned around um, when we got to the top of the route and saw how bad it was. The safest thing would have been to have repelled the route, even leaving some gear behind. Um, so did I think that, we had a plan and, and we were a bit inflexible in changing. Did that, that play plan. into your decision, the um, the thought of leaving gear behind or not really? 
no, um, it never does um, uh, ever. Like I would rather leave behind $100 worth of gear and get down safely than go through any problem. So sure. um, I'm all for replacing cat and doing everything. Yes. Uh, every time I go climbing, so I never re- really factor that in. Yeah. So really the decision, it, it was more influenced by the fact that your original plan had been uh, to walk off the side of the mountain and you got up there and you were like, oh, well, that's what we're going to do. So we'd just do it. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think we we had a lot of, we had a fair bit of experience uh, summer mountaineering and not a lot of experience in more these more wintry conditions. So I think uh, although we had have, had avalanche training, we actually had transceivers and probes with us and everything. I think we were probably a bit green around those issues. Um, I think, you know, it felt very confident in snow and ice. And as I said, it's been a whole year climbing peaks on uh, five continents, I think. Um, but I hadn't ever got into a situation uh, like that before. I think we did pretty well to, I mean, we continued to work cohesively as a team. Um, my climbing partner was fantastic. Um, we trusted each other to get us out and we both kept going. So I think we did okay, but yes, the decision-making before we got into that situation uh, was, you know, we do things differently in retrospect, I think. It was sort of one of those things where the day unfolded and we could have made a few different decisions along the way that may have kept us safer. On the other hand, we might have uh, turned around or wrapped the route and then not realised how unstable the slope was going up to Pioneer Hut and got avalanched as we headed up the slope that we'd come down in the morning. So, Yeah, true. Yeah. It was just like risky conditions all around. I don't know. Yeah. It sounded like your training really kicked in though because you said you'd done – um, a mountaineering course you'd obviously done avalanche training when you're in that situation when you you know like when you were going over the cliff um you said you like it was it was kind of instinctive by the sounds of it that your training just kind of kicked in you went through a checklist in those three seconds of the things that you were supposed to do to keep yourself safe um was that how it felt did it feel like that training just immediately came back to you in that moment um, it's hard to know whether it's training or just, I mean, reading um, tales of mishap and, and hearing, I guess, stories like this, you sort of tend to, to read those because they make interesting stories. So just, yeah, putting together everything that you've heard and read and think about just sort of, it's amazing how your brain works in split seconds with a bit of adrenaline. Um and you get such clarity of thought um, in, in situations like that. So um, that helped. Um, staying calm in a crisis, um, we are both doctors, so you kind of get trained to to work through things and, and stay calm in a crisis. So neither of us was going to panic in situation. So that, I think that definitely helped as well. Yeah, and probably being a doctor helped as well because it meant you could sort of take a bit of a um, an inventory of your injuries and be like, yep, actually, I can probably just make it back to the hut. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's, it's like, I mean, I think you sort of think, oh, I've got broken ribs. Yes, my lung could be collapsed. My collarbone's all right, and, but my arm really hurts and feels a bit dead my hand is functioning so so what was the end result with your injuries you you did have a couple of cracked ribs uh it was interesting i thought i possibly should get an x-ray before i flew back to australia in case i did actually have a slightly punctured lung because you're not meant to fly in that situation but there was a radiographer's strike in christchurch so you couldn't actually get an x-ray uh by the time we got back there and that was we we still had a week in new zealand and um, it was good. We went to a friend's place who lives who lived near Wanaka, who was a, who was a climber and, and stayed there. And it was good 
to discuss it and talk things over. And Ant's uh, partner and and father actually came over, and and uh, sort of were with him. I decided not to tell my parents <laughs> until I got back to Australia because it would just worry them. And we were obviously out of harm's way by then. But certainly there was some element of a sort of post-traumatic stress almost, like there's hyper-realism and going through the events constantly and nightmares and finding it difficult to concentrate. And even months after, I'd be like training in sand hills near home and the sand, as you run up the sand hills, the sand starts to slide. And I, it was actually making me anxious. Oh my god! And the, the next mountaineering trip I did, we went up the west ridge of Sefton, and we went a bit slow for various reasons. And is, coming back, is that in New Zealand as well? That, that was in New Zealand, so that was sort of in the January, I think. So about three months later. That's not long. Um, no, and it, I probably should have explained more to my climbing partners, but I, I got very tetchy because we were going so slow and the sun was getting on the slope and we were actually getting little wet slides and I was not comfortable at all in those conditions. In fact, we probably shouldn't have been there either. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it sort of played on my mind. And as I said, since then, I've probably gravitated more to alpine rock and uh, and and rock climbing and the mountaineering uh, sort of slowly dwindled a bit I still love getting out there so was Um, that do you think that was sort of that moment was was the catalyst for you moving away from um yeah from mountaineering or were there I mean I'm sure there were other factors as well but um was that kind of the main thing that steered you away from mountaineering uh I mean I kept going to New Zealand and I mean did a few other uh significant climbs and so on but I just found as things got warmer, the uh, sort of significant rock falls and it was just a matter of, you know, you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and the objective risks, I think I sort of decided that it was getting too high. Um, you know, experienced people, people with more experience than me were, were, were dying. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I get a huge amount of pleasure from rock climbing and it did seem, as I said, as I was falling, it seemed like what a stupid way to die. (laughs) I feel like we could do a whole other podcast episode on this, but it's so interesting that you brought that up that, um, you know, as conditions warm um, and they'll continue to do so, that's kind of making those conditions more dangerous. Um, And I guess that's another reason it sounds like why you've, steered away from this because you're seeing a significant or a, some sort of increased risk. Um, do you think, are, are there new things that people need to do or different things that people need to do to mitigate risk in um, alpine environments now because of climate change? I think people have changed the season uh, that they're climbing. So the season seems to become much earlier. Um my understanding is, in, if you read Frida Defar's ascent of Mount Cook, you know, over 100 years ago, it sounded like they just walked up the valley. Um, and now the glacier is uh, 50 metres or 100 metres below where they walked. It's dropped that much. If you tried to reenact uh, Frida Defar's ascent of Mount Cook up Earl's Ridge, um, I think it was in 2010. And it was just rock and really unstable conditions and we decided it wasn't safe. So things have definitely changed a lot in a hundred years. So people were, the season's getting earlier. People uh, often will climb more at night and actually try and get off by daytime when the freezing level is high. Um, and I guess people are using helicopters more in New Zealand now because the approaches can be quite risky. And then mm-hmm. that seems quite uh, ironic, I guess, that people are using fossil fuels <laughs> to uh, get to climb and it's fossil fuels that have been driving you know, climate change to a large extent. So, Yeah. 
That's so heavy. Like I said, I feel like I could do an entire podcast episode talking about that alone. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention. So, um, yeah, like I said, my partner, Andrew, he's um, pretty into alpine climbing and mountaineering. Um, and when I told him about this podcast, he um, he gave me some recommended reading, <laughs> which is um, a, a book by um, Penny Goddard, who wrote Avalanche Awareness in the New Zealand Backcountry, um, which I have to admit, I have not read cover to cover, but it, it seems like a pretty good um, kind of roundup of uh, things that you need to know in terms of um, avalanche advisories, what conditions you should go out in, the, you know, the different class terrains um, that you need to be aware of when you're um, climbing in those areas. Um, but I want to know from you, I, I mean, this to me seems like a pretty good starting point for anybody wanting to um, get into mountaineering. Um, but I want to know from you what you would recommend for people who want to try um, doing some mountaineering, whether it's specifically in New Zealand or in other areas. Obviously, uh, like you said at the start of the show, we don't really have that much, um, that many options here in Australia for, for training grounds for that sort of thing. So what can people do? What can Aussies do who have no experience other than, you know, fair weather rock climbing? Yeah, I mean, I think bear with the rock climbing, at least you can still tie knots and you know about rope, rope craft, so that's a good start. And, and trad climbing in particular is helpful. Some of the skills translate. Um, getting into snow crafts and so knowing how to snow camp and ski a bit is very helpful. Um, just know how to look after yourself, how, a, how to, to use a stove when you're on the snow, how to camp in the snow is a good good thing to do and you can do all that in Australia but the courses in New Zealand you can either do them through the New Zealand Alpine Club uh, after joining or um, all the commercial companies are really good and go and do a course and the courses in New Zealand were really good in that they actually were trying to teach you and talk through some of the decision making processes to equip you to be able to go out and do your own trips obviously starting off gently and, and working your way up um whereas a lot of the european guided um teaching or, or trips often are just they teach you how to work with a guide but they don't really want you to go and do things independently so if, if you're into in, being independent in the mountains and you know, i'd highly recommend doing a new zealand course sure. i think is one good way of doing it and how much sort of preparation and, and kind of technical training do people need before it's safe for them to go out and do their own thing in the mountains? Uh, I think it depends on uh, what objectives you choose and um, what other background you have. Like if you come from, um, you know, being quite comfortable in the Australian snowy region at least you have some idea of how to look after yourself properly in the snow um and have hopefully some idea of the right equipment to have um i think experience you know you don't want to make mistakes necessarily um but i mean the first trip we ever did independently we made the mistake of carrying way too much gear mistakes like that are fine uh whereas usually being a bit faster and a bit lighter uh, is to your advantage. Yeah, we've been hearing that a lot on the podcast. I feel like a lot of people have been saying that. And that really is just experience too, isn't it? Like the more hours you do, the more you learn what you need and what you don't need to carry with you. Yeah, I mean, there's estimations that you should have 10,000 hours of things to actually become professional in it uh, and have experienced most things whatever you're trying, whether it's some sport or a profession or a job. But, I mean, I think if you can associate yourself with people, you know, if you're keen and people who have experience um, and get some type of mentorship, then that's really helpful as well. Yeah, and as with all climbing, I guess, like a really good, reliable partner, like you and Ant obviously both had um, – a lot of experience under your belt. You both knew exactly what to do. You were both calm in that situation. Um, so I'm sure that really pays off as well, having a partner with you in the mountains that you really know you can trust and who's knowledgeable. 
yeah, I mean, I think we had a good partnership. I've certainly had other ones that haven't been so successful. And a lot of it is coming from Australia. You don't have a, a way of finding partners necessarily. Um, so it's good if you like have a friend who's really interested in climbing and you both go and do the course together and you can learn together. Um, at least you can get a partnership going. Because I've certainly had some very interesting internet dates in a mountaineering sense <laughs> over the years, especially in the year that I went travelling around the world uh, by myself. Uh, that's the, that would be a, that's the that worst kind of blind date because you might actually die. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you do try and uh, and find out about people's experience um, and aptitude and... It's hard to, to find someone of, you know, you want someone of similar fitness, I guess. You don't want to be held back by someone being super slow, but if you sort of are more into, um, you know, slow and steady, you don't want to have someone who's super fast and racing ahead of you and then them getting frustrated as well. So, yeah, having someone of similar, um, who has similar objectives in mind, I think, and and thinks similarly in terms of safety is also important. So some people are quite happy to accept more risk uh, than others, and that I've observed often leads to to clashes in partnerships as well over the years. How's this whole experience um, kind of changed or shaped your relationship with risk? Um. I said, I think in terms of my own uh, level of risk in terms of being taken out by rock wall or something, I I did slowly back away from mountaineering or become slightly more cautious. But in risk overall, I, I, I've you know my job. We're talking about risks all the time of of surgery and so on and. In terms of my own life, it's much easier making decisions about yourself than, than, you know, directing patients to undergo very life-changing operations with significant risks of dying. So um, it didn't really affect me too much, I don't think. I get that sense because I want to – another thing that – piqued my interest about your article is uh, the final few sentences, which I just want to read to people because it's a really good article, by the way. I I don't know if people will be able to track this down from uh, 2006, but I'll read the last little bit because I found it really interesting and I'm going to ask you to talk about it afterwards. But you've said here, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe I'm being melodramatic. Our injuries were pretty minor. Each time I recount the story, it becomes diluted. It's as if I'm talking about someone else. So do you think partly because over time for you, it kind of sounds like as well, like we don't know each other that well. We've had, this is our second phone conversation, but I get the sense that you're a very kind of calm and collected and even keel uh, kind of woman. And I, I get the sense that when you went through this experience, it didn't really rattle you all that much. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I definitely had symptoms of post-traumatic stress for, I don't know, probably a year or so, um, but primarily for the first three months. And the way I dealt with it, I guess, was to just try and ration, rationally look at what we, both of us, both Ant and I wrote, it, wrote an article about it. We discussed it at length. We discussed it with other experienced mountaineers. We analysed it, try and learn from mistakes. Um, but I think it was just time and slowly exposing myself back into to situations in the alpine setting to make me more comfortable there again. Um, but, yeah, uh, uh, I, I may not have answered your question. <laughs> No, I feel like that answered my question really well. I didn't really ask a very good question. Um, but yeah, I was curious about why, um, you know, or not even why, how you got to that place of, um, you know, kind of feeling a bit more, um, 
yeah, zen about the entire experience. Um, but it's interesting you say that you did struggle with PTSD. And in that time period when you were struggling with that, did you ever consider giving up climbing for good? Or was that never an option? Uh, no, I didn't consider it at all. In fact, we tried to go climbing, um, rock climbing, about a week after the event, but my arm hurt too much and I couldn't really do it for about four weeks. But I felt so much better when I started to climb again, um, just in being outdoors and and appreciating the fact that I was here to do it, I think. I, I, I was a late comer to climbing, but it sort of, you know, really took over um, my life in a way. Um, it, it was it's such a great pastime and you're sort of very focused on the movement um, and problem solving and you're in amazing locations and I certainly wouldn't give that away. I was intrigued by that at the start that you said you you found climbing at the age of 34 because I'm 32 now. So I'm like, oh, maybe a couple more years and and I'll be as good as you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have the naturally strong fingers though, so maybe not. (laughs) Um, Vanessa, I want to know. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think keep working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I need to do more hangboarding. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting too much uh, onto the listeners. Um, but that's a pretty gnarly story. So for people listening who are like, why on earth would I go and do this now, having heard this story, um, where like, yeah, a couple of mistakes were made, but, you know, there was a fair bit of bad luck involved too and just the general risk of being in this environment. Um you know, why Why do people go and do this style of climbing? Because it is pretty risky. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Why, why does anyone do anything? A lot of our pastimes seem quite <laughs> futile and things are attractive to people for different reasons. So the only thing I can say is such a beautiful, wonderful environment to be in. You just look out and the mountains are around you and the air is clear and you just feel like a little speck in nature, really. Um, it just sort of reminds there's some hardship and there's some privation and some decisions and the tolerance of ambiguity. All those things kind of were attractive to me. You sort of have to be in the moment uh, while you're doing it, really. So it kind of helps you, takes you away from the, the mundaneness of, of life and traffic and shopping and you you can actually feel part of the world I think Mm. that's that's why I enjoy it but I'm sure other people like it for its athleticism or there's some people that you know don't even feel that there's much risk or they're happy to keep pushing that envelope because it makes them feel more alive that's a remarkable story really the fact that you both escaped so unscathed is is really incredible yeah I appreciate you sharing because it's a um it's a hard thing to do and I don't know I mean I guess you wrote this article back in the day back in 2006 um sharing the story um but were you apprehensive the first time you did that to an audience of New Zealand climbers who you know were probably quite discerning when it came to mountaineering um yeah, I, was, I mean, I think we actually got generally um, nice feedback from other climbers. I mean, I think a lot of climbers, if you, if you climb enough, you are going to get into situations where things aren't quite uh, under your control. And as I said, we, we did manage to forge a way out of that situation despite having made some decisions that we could have done better with our decision making but um yeah we generally got good feedback uh about the fact that we shared it um as a cautionary tale and i guess i'd I'd also like to say i mean i've now been climbing for for 20 years and uh, my my crag account is embarrassing i think i've climbed 200 and something kilometers of technical ground um probably like 300 and that's not the mountaineering side, that's just technical rock. 
Oh, my God. And this is – that's about the only epic that I really – been involved in um i tend to check everything um without being you know super anal about things but i certainly believe in you know checking things especially when abseiling um and i mean i have the other things i've been involved with is helping other people who've been injured uh where things haven't gone right that's probably another podcast. Yeah. Well, come back on, honestly. It's because this is the thing, like as someone with so much experience and also, like you said, the willingness to share um, is invaluable because, you know, the only ways you learn about this stuff, you learn, you know, some of the choices that you need to make is either by making mistakes yourself or having someone else pass on their wisdom from making the mistake before you so it's I just think in climbing it's so valuable to have this community of people who are willing to share um things that they could have done better because it means that we're all safer for it which is awesome yeah and I'm not involved but there is a a move to get an Australian accident register happening Mm -hmm. Uh, where climbing accidents are uh, are logged so that people can learn rather than it just being a voyeuristic type opportunity actually have some some learnings from it and the american alpine association also um does that every year and it makes for for sobering reading but very interesting reading and i think that's why we you know had very sensible you know people didn't say you idiots and blah 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 it's like a lot of people said there but there but for the grace of god go i so um i think it's important to share these tales and, and what we've learned from them. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story, Vanessa. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. That concludes the episode with Vanessa Wills. Thanks again to Vanessa for chatting to me during a holiday to share such an intense story. And thank you so much to you for coming back and listening to another episode of The Bailist. I am so glad to finally be bringing you the audio quality that you deserve from Sunnydale Studios. Episodes from here on out will be sounding a whole lot more professional, which is really exciting. I'd also like to thank our OG brand supporters, Wild Earth Australia and Awesome Woodies. You can find both of them on the socials at Wild Earth Australia and Awesome Woodies. Follow us on the socials too, at The Bail List on Facebook and Instagram. Send me your fails, bails and epics if you'd like to be on the show or just get in touch and say hi. The Bail List acknowledges the Yugen Bear Language Group, the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded. We pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Stay tuned for more episodes. I'll speak to you again soon. Bye.